record button from where I'm here. Okay, now we've got recording in progress, so we should be fine. So whoever fixed it, thank you very much. We're going to be on page 77, by the way, once we get started. Page 77. Anyway, Ernie Gehrig from Ypsilanti, Michigan, really had a lot of girlfriends. And his wife was not happy with the fact somebody's unmuted. So if you're a host or a co-host, could you sort of go through there and take care of that, please? Thanks. That would be awesome. Okay, thanks. Seems like you fixed it. So Ernie Gehrig had a lot of girlfriends and one day he got a job offering in Toledo, Ohio. And he went down to Toledo, Ohio with his wife and his wife said, I will agree to move to Toledo, Ohio if you stop running around with all these other women. And so he left his girlfriends in Ypsilanti, Michigan and he made new girlfriends in Toledo, Ohio. One day when they were in Toledo, Ohio, in late 1935, in late summer of 1935, just as Bill Wilson was leaving, to, was leaving Akron, word got to Ernie Gehrig's wife about a doctor in Akron that was fixing drunks. And she heard about this doctor that was fixing drunks and she grabbed him by the ear and she took him to Akron, Ohio. And she took him to Dr. Bob's office and she said, my husband is a drunk. I want you to fix him. And Dr. Bob said, well, I can't fix him, but I can certainly, if he's willing, point him in the direction of things he can do to help him to help. So they went and they started, um, <clears throat> what do you call it? They started the program of recovery, but they were in Akron a very short period of time. He got a job at a machine shop, but they had to live with the Smiths. They had to live with Dr. Bob and Ann for a while. And in the autumn of 1935, right after Bill Wilson left Akron in late August of 1935, this was October of 35 when the Gehrigs moved into that house. And if you've ever been to Dr. Bob's house, it's actually quite a modest home. So you you get a new feeling for how charitable, how uh, unbelievably generous the Smiths were to let these people live with them. That's quite an imposition to have house guests all the time like that. It's really something that is very difficult. I know uh, there's an expression, house guests are like fish. After five days, they got to go. They got to go. Well, anyway, the Gehrigs moved in with Dr. Bob and Ann Smith and they were going to an Oxford group meeting on a Friday night and Ernie Gehrig's wife made a confession to some of the Oxford group people there. Now, remember that the Oxford groupers did not work steps like we do. They had their four absolutes and they had their six steps, but they did not have a clause in their in their restitution step that said, except when to do so would injure them or others. So let's follow back through the story. She confesses on a Friday night that she, in retaliation for Ernie's uh, philandering, has made a boyfriend. And she has been dating this man behind Ernie's back to get back at him for all the humiliation that he has caused her with his philandering and his girlfriends. 
And so she tells this to the Oxford group women. And the Oxford group women tell her on a Friday night, oh dear, you've got to make You've got to tell Ernie this tomorrow. You've got to make restitution for this tomorrow by telling him and making sure that you no longer see that boyfriend. You are a married woman, dear, and you do not need boyfriends. You should not be running around with boyfriends. The next day was a rainy Saturday in October of 1935. Now, as I've said here before, is there a day of the week or any time when it's more inviting to take a nap than on a rainy, cold autumn Saturday? I mean, that is like nap Valhalla to me. But anyway, they weren't napping and it's Saturday and Dr. Bob and Ann Smith are out and they're buying groceries. They took the Oldsmobile and they were out buying groceries. And she lays this on Ernie, that she has a boyfriend and that she's not gonna see him anymore, but she wants him to stop philandering. He goes into the drawer where the knives are and grabs a knife. And it's a good thing that Ernie Gehrig's wife was not only small, but fast on her feet because she's running through the house with Ernie right behind her, flailing this knife, trying to kill her. When in walks Dr. Bob and Ann Smith, arms full of groceries. And Dr. Bob tries to grab the knife away from Ernie. And he's flailing the knife and just about cuts Ann Smith in the heart. He almost plunged the knife into her chest. He just missed her. Just missed her. And Dr. Bob said, I'm very sorry. You guys are going to have to leave. You can no longer be guests in our home. Ernie and his wife returned to Ypsilanti later on in life. He ended up in a asylum and she ended up with she ended up divorcing him. And that was the end of their marriage. And to our knowledge, he never did get sober. But when we talk about the formation of these steps and we talk about the history of AA, we talk about all the things that led into what we have here today. Remember that Dr. Bob didn't meet Bill and all of a sudden something sprung out of their ears to formulate AA, that what we have today was given us as, a, an, as an inheritance by unlikely people coming from unlikely directions. So here is this serial philanderer. Here is this serial cheater on his wife, and he bequeaths us the clause in our steps, except when to do so would injure them or others. So it was determined by Bill and determined by Hank and determined by people once this story got back to New York that there would be times when you would not make amends because when you if you do so you will hurt the person to whom you are making the amends so what we want to remember as we go through last week's reading and we go through this step we don't save our butt at the expense of someone else you don't have the right to implicate or harm another person you just don't 
And last week we read one of the most important sentences in this book, and it's on page 77, and we're going to start on page 77. We're going to start with the uh, words, we don't use this as an excuse. But in the paragraph that we left last week, it says, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Now, in order for me to be of maximum service to God or the people about me, I have to meet certain criterias. Number one, I have to be free of the food. Maybe I thought in my other life in the food that I was of service because I, I, I like to I like my friends and I'm a I'm a decently generous person and I'm giving and I'm whatever I am. But you know what? When I'm loaded with food, I'm really not able to give anything to anybody, even though I don't see it. Number two, I have to be aware of the fact that this disease will tear me to shreds. It will make me hate myself. It will make me be ashamed of myself. It will isolate me. Can I be of maximum service to God and the people about me when I'm full of self-loathing? Can I be of maximum service to God and the people about me when I don't feel comfortable in my skin because I'm constantly gaining weight? Can I be of maximum service to God and the people about me when I care not for what they're saying to me because all I'm thinking about is my drug pushers are at Safeway right now, my drug pushers in their little Girl Scout uniforms and their little brownie uniforms, they're out there pushing the Thin Mints that have ruined my life? Well, the bottom line is, is that my situation is such that I have to be fully present for people. And I have to be fully present for God. And I have to be alleviated of this self-loathing and this shame and this feeling of isolation. The feeling of either being better than you or worse than you has to be lifted from me. And the only way that it can be lifted is for me not to try to lift it. Every morning I read the words from page 60 to 63. It says, we had to have God's help. It says, here's the how and the why of it. We had to quit playing God. It didn't work. I have to be in a position of being recovered. I have to be in recovery in order to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. Those are the, those are the prerequisites. I have to be in recovery. I don't have to necessarily be recovered. I don't necessarily have to be at goal weight. My goal weight is still five pounds, 11 ounces, because that's what I weighed on May 24th, 1954, five pounds, 11 ounces. I want to try to get back to that, but that's a little unrealistic. So the bottom line is I have to be at or approaching a healthy body weight. I have to be free of the self-loathing and I have to be imbued with a spirit that says to me, I cannot play God. It simply doesn't work. Let's go to the chapter, page 77. We don't use this as an excuse for shying away from the subject of God. This is talking about amends. Now, if someone is godly 
and I know that this is a person who is a spiritual person or a religious person, I can mention God. But you don't have to mention God to a person you're making an amends to if you don't know or you're certain or suspicious that it would be something that they wouldn't quite understand. You're not there to proselytize God. You're there to make an amends. If I took your money, which is 99% of my amends is money amends. I didn't kiss anybody's wife. Too bad for me. I didn't know. I don't want to do that. I didn't kiss anybody's wife. I didn't kiss anybody's girlfriend. I didn't do any of that stuff during my lifetime. That was never anything that I did. But my amends were money amends. So nobody was really concerned with, did I believe in God or talk about God? I took their money. Now they want their money back. And if I'm smart enough to steal it, I'm going to be smart enough to pay it back. I don't, maybe I can't pay it back all in one hunk, but I can definitely make payments. We'll get a little more into that in just a minute. We don't use this as an excuse for shying away from the subject of God when it will serve any good purpose. We are willing to announce our convictions with tact and common sense. And common sense means either mention it or don't, but don't worry about it and don't get hung up on it. Well, I don't know how I'm going to bring up God with Joe. Then don't bring it up. Make amends for what you've done. Go forward and make the amends that you need to make. Go forward and make the amends that you absolutely need to make. Don't, don't get hung up in this. The question of how to approach the man we hated will arise. It may be he has done us more harm than we have done him. And though we may have acquired a better attitude toward him, we are still not too keen about admitting our faults. Nevertheless, with a person we dislike, we take the bit in our teeth. It is harder to go to an enemy than to a friend, but we find it much more beneficial to us. We go to him in a helpful and forgiving spirit. Helpful and forgiving, which means even though he has harmed us more than we may have harmed him, we have worked out our resentments and now we are going with a forgiving spirit. You go into these amends with a chip on your shoulder. You go into these amends like a like like a madman going in there to to wreak havoc. You're going to create more harm than you're going to solve. We are going there to fix. We are not going there to teach people a lesson. We are not confronting them about their faults, their behaviors. We are simply not doing that. We are not there to teach them lessons that they're not going to treat us like that. That is not the purpose of our amends. Our purpose of the amends is to recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And without that, we're not going to recover. And we also make amends because it puts us right with God. It puts us right with ourselves and right with our fellow human beings. And this is a vital and instrumental piece of that process that we will not be able to live free of the food if we carry around the guilt, the shame, the remorse, the fear, and the utter horror of the things that we have done if we leave them unrepaired. Let's continue. 
Under no, no, under no condition do we criticize such a person or argue. We do not criticize or argue. I'm not from a long line of arguers. I have friends of mine that love to argue. It's like a drug. Oh my God. Oh my God. It's like a drug. I am not from that ilk. I am not from that club. I, I surrender. You're right. I don't, I'm from the arguers, but I have a friend of mine. I'm actually going to see him next Friday. He, he loves it. He loves arguing. Oh my God, my God. It's like, a, it's like, it's like an elixir to his soul, but I'm just not born that way. We are not there to criticize such a person or argue. We're just not, we're there. What does it say? Simply, we tell him we will never get over drinking until we have done our utmost to straighten out the past. We do the best we can to straighten out the past. I treated my mother horribly. I was a terrible son to my mother, terrible. I was rude to her. I blamed her for everything. My mother was nuts. My mother had three personalities. Uh, pretty normal, two-year-old and screaming, raving lunatic. And you never knew what you were going to get or how long it was going to last. I blamed her for everything. And I was not a good son. Today, I see and live in some of the wisdom that she tried to impart on me. And I am the person that I am not just because of her, no, but partly because of her. I had a father that was extremely scared and angry about what happened to him when he was 14 years old. His family was obliterated off the face of this earth in murderous fashion. They were obliterated off the face of this earth. For what reason? For what reason? My God, my God, my God, what that man lived through, I wouldn't wish on anybody. And my mother used to say to me, you cannot think like him. If you think like him, you will live like him. And if you live like him, you'll have no life. And she was 100% correct. She loved me very much. And my dad loved me, but I was not a good son. I just wasn't. So I try now to conduct myself in a way that she would be very proud of. I do the best that I can. I wish I could do better. I'm doing the best that I can. These are some of the ways we make amends to the dead. These are some of the ways we make amends to people that we cannot reach or cannot or should not uh, contact. Let's continue. We'll get a little bit more into my mom. We'll get a little bit more into this as we go along. And I will expand some of this to broaden your understanding of how we make amends to people that are no longer with us. Let's continue for now. We are there to sweep off our side of the street, realizing that nothing worthwhile can be accomplished top of 78 until we do so, never trying to tell him what he should do. We are not there to give advice to people that we are there to make amends to. We're not there to tell them anything. We're there to sweep off our side of the street. And that is our purpose. That is our purpose. His faults are not discussed. 
The first couple of times I wrote letters to my mother, I had a sponsor and he was in Chicago and we used to meet every Saturday. We would sit down and we would meet and he would plunge his big finger into my chest and he'd say, are you out of ideas yet, kid? Are you out of ideas? Because I was 20, 30 years younger than anybody in that room. I was, I was 24, 25 years old when this was going on or 26 at that time. I was 30 years younger, 20 years younger than anybody in that room. And he called me kid. I used to think that I used to think that being 50 was really old. I'll be 69 here in about 10 minutes. I, I don't know whether to jump out the window or drink Drano. I'm not quite sure. But the bottom line is, is that he said, you out of ideas yet, kid? And he used to call me kid. And he'd say, you got to be out of ideas to recover. And the first couple of letters that I wrote to my mom, I was writing about how she was crazy. And I forgive her for being crazy. And he'd say, this isn't an amends. This is an indictment. And he tore it up in front of me. And then I wrote another letter and he tore that up in front of me. Then I wrote another letter and he tore that up in front of me. Three times he tore the letters up right in front of me. And the fourth time I wrote the letter, he gave me a derisive snort and he went, all right, this is okay. And he gave it back to me. Their faults are not discussed. Do not go in there without a sponsor. Do not attempt to make these amends without the guidance of a sober, informed sponsor. You're going to cause more harm than you're going to solve. You have to know what you're making an amends for. Why are you there? We don't make amends to people because we're not friends with them anymore. We don't make amends to people because we thought something. We make amends for what we do not for what we think. Very important distinction. What are you there to make an amends for? His faults are not discussed. We stick to our own. If our manner is calm, frank, and open, we will be gratified with the results. Calm, frank, and open, not hostile, rushed, and guilty. Be calm. You did it, you clean it up. Be frank. Frank means honest. Here's what I did. Here's the situation. Here's your money. Or how do I make this right? Or whatever that particular situation is. And open. Open to what? Open to being honest. And open to anything that they may not say. Now, listen to me because this is important and this is a mistake that I've made and I don't want you to make it. When it says be open, be open to any responses that they may give you. They may not stick to your script and that's why you're scared of this. You have to use step 10 as you do step nine. You have to have the guidance of a sponsor. We are not in the results business. We cannot dictate to people how they should respond. We are not there to tell them that they must forgive us. There were people that didn't like me before. They probably don't like me now. That's okay. That's okay. You, you, you don't like everybody and not everybody's going to like me either. There isn't, there's 156 people here and not one of you likes everybody. 
Some of you like some people more than others. Some of you, whatever. But the bottom line is, if they are not sticking to our script, that's okay. Nothing in the step says, and they will like you and stick to your script. There's nothing in the step that guarantees that. What we are guaranteed is if we don't make the amends, we will eat again. Remember that there were four impediments to God that Bill used to formulate this program of action. And the four impediments came from uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Dr. Reverend Shoemaker, Sam Shoemaker of the Oxford group in the cavalry mission in New York City, where the boys would gather. And he said, these four impediments will keep anyone from conscious contact with their creator. Number one, a resentment that you will not let go of. A resentment that you will not let go of is step four. A secret that you will not tell, step five. A harmful thrill that you will not stop, step six and seven. And a restitution that you will not make, steps eight and nine. So if, if you fail to make these amends, you will not recover. So let's continue. In nine cases out of 10, the unexpected happens. Sometimes the man we are calling upon admits his own fault. So feuds of years standing melt away in an hour. Rarely do we fail to make satisfactory progress. Our former enemies sometimes praise what we are doing and wish us well. I had that happen. 90% of the time I was scared to death. And just about everyone that I spoke to where I went back with money and paid them back, they wished me well. They saw a dramatic weight loss in me from the, what they remembered. And they wished me well. Now, that may not be the case for all people in all situations, but this is something that I experienced, and it is quite wonderful. Occasionally, they will offer assistance. It should not matter, however, if someone does throw us out of his office. We have made our demonstration, done our part. It's water over the dam. We are not in the results business. We are not in the results business means specifically, we are not there to govern another person's reaction. We are just not there to govern how another person is going to react to us. Let's continue. Most alcoholics owe money. There's the, there's the sentence of the century. Most alcoholics owe money. We do not dodge our creditors telling them what we are trying to do. We make no bones about our drinking. They usually know it anyway. With me, there was no hiding it. Now, I know some people that maybe they're bulimic or maybe they're you know anorexic or whatever. With me, I was out there. I mean, I was hundreds and hundreds of pounds overweight. So the fact that I had a food problem, a weight problem, was apparent to anyone that wasn't blind. I mean, you had to be blind not to think this guy's got a serious, serious problem here. And for a long time in my life, I wore t-shirts that had food stains all over them and I smoked and there'd be cigarette, there'd be burn holes in all my clothes and I stunk and I was dirty and I, I, my hygiene was non-existent and I didn't brush my teeth. I was a mess. You didn't have to be 
uh, Sherlock Holmes to figure out this guy is circling the drain. And I looked very different when I went back to make amends to a lot of these people. I carried myself differently. I was like a different person because I had been reborn and they noticed it. But what happens here is you don't have to disclose things if it's not pertinent to the conversation. You did this, you're there to give it back. You know, some of the people you're going to know, some of the people maybe you don't know. Maybe you're returning stolen goods to a department store. They don't know you. You don't know them. There's really no reason to sit and discuss it. But what you want to do is you want to give them a clear picture of what you're there for. Here's what I did. Here's what I want to do to make restitution, pay you the money back. And I'm trying to straighten out my life. The specifics of I'm bulimic or I'm a compulsive overeater or I'm an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever is not necessary in those cases. Again, don't, don't do this without a sponsor. We are not in the results business and we are not there to coerce a result from the person that we're talking to. Very, very important that you remember we are not in the results business. Okay. Nor are we afraid of disclosing our alcoholism on the theory it may cause financial harm. Now, you have to remember something. In the days of the 1930s, alcoholism had a very different stigma than what it has today. Alcoholics and drug addicts who are still using are not a protected class under the eyes of the law. They are not a protected class. But alcoholics and drug addicts who are under some form of treatment now are a protected class under the eyes of the law. So if you're still drinking and you're still using, yes, you can come under the gun of a lot of scrutiny. But if you're, if you're in a program, you become a protected class in the eyes of the law. So it's a little bit different. But Nonetheless, you, if, if you're going to cause financial harm, you don't have to disclose your alcoholism. You just have to make amends. Remember, the step does not say we disclosed our alcoholism to those we have harmed. We discussed our bulimia with those we have harmed. We discussed our anorexia with those we... It doesn't say that. It talks about making amends. It doesn't talk about making a full disclosure or telling the person your life story. In most cases, they don't care. You stole money from them, they want the money back. You did this, they want that back. They want that restituted. So you're not there to tell the person your life story. Approached in this way, the most ruthless creditor will sometimes surprise us. Arranging the best deal we can, we let these people know we are sorry. Our drinking has made us slow to pay. We must lose our fear of creditors no matter how far we have to go. For we are liable to drink if we are afraid to face them. Very, very important words. We are liable to drink if we are afraid to face them. Not liable certainly will. Fear is a corroding thread and it will wrap its way around you and force you back into the food. And you've got to deal with this stuff. You've been running from it too long. 
you get into recovery, you work with a recovered sponsor, you face these things. Very, very important. I want to tell you a story about an amends that I had to make a number of years ago. I'm born and raised in Chicago, as you know, and I was still living there at this time. And I was very, very new in OA at this time, but I was still enormous. And in the summer of 81, I had been in program for two years. I had a need of a guy who was an endodontist. And an endodontist is a guy who does root canal. Okay. So I went to this guy and he did root canal. And uh, his office was right by my old high school, like a block from my old high school. And I got a recommendation from a friend and this guy's good. Okay. I go in there and his daughter ran the office. His daughter was the nurse or the, you know, whatever. I think she was also the hygienist or something, but anyway, she came in and numbed me up. She, she put the Novocaine in my mouth and gave me like three or four shots of Novocaine so I could get this, um, this root canal. He comes in like 10 years later, I'm sitting there for like 10 years. Anyway, he comes in and he says, you have to be the fattest man I've ever seen in my entire life. How much do you weigh? This is the first thing that this man has ever said to me in his life. No, hi, good to see you. What can I do? Nothing. He comes in, he looks at me, he says, you have to be the fattest person, the fattest man I've ever seen in my entire life. How much do you weigh? What do you eat? Why do you eat so much? Why don't you go on a diet? Now, I had been an object of ridicule my entire life from this disease. This disease catapulted me in a situation where I was not only an object of ridicule, but I would often ridicule myself so that maybe others would take it easier on me. And that doesn't usually work. But children had been laughing at me and adults had been approaching me, ridiculing me for many, many years. And I just wanted to die because I knew inherently I was not put on this earth to be an object of ridicule. But if you see a person who is a minority or you see a person who is handicapped or you see a person who is in an, un, is in, in an unfortunate situation, you don't ridicule that person. But if a person is obese, he's he or she is just open game to anybody with a wisecrack and kids laugh at me and you know I, if i was in a public place it would it would be unmerciful so i got used to shutting down emotionally i got used to shutting down emotionally and weathering the storm i would weather the storm well he's his face is 1 inch from my face and he's now working on my mouth He's giving me root canal while he's berating me for being so fat. And he's afraid I'm going to break his chair because the chair in his office only goes up to 350 pounds. And I'm well, well, well beyond 350 pounds. And sure enough, as he's twisting me around and moving me this way and that way, the chair breaks. Now he's on a wild tirade. I mean, a wild tirade. 
He's yelling at his daughter. Don't you ever take an appointment from this guy? He look how fat this man is. My God, how do you even walk down the street? And he's yelling at me that I shouldn't eat candy. And I, I he's, he's just going bonkers, bonkers. And he gives me my file and he says, don't you dare ever come back here. And I'm thinking to myself, don't worry, MFR. There's not a chance in hell I'm coming back here. I left his office and my end, now my end of a root canal now would be $1,000, but that time it was $62 because I had good insurance then. And my end of it was $62. Well, you know what this, I've written bad checks to better than him and I'm not paying him the $62. There's no effing way I am paying this putz $62. I'd rather die than do that. And I didn't for years. Now I'm back. I had left and now I'm back and now I want to recover. And it's now 1986. And I have a sponsor and he's looking at this and he sees my ACE step list and he sees this dentist. And he keeps telling me, what about the doctor? And I say dentist and he says, shut up. And he says, what about the doctor the next week? And I say, it's a dentist. And he again says, shut up. And eventually I kept doing other amends. I, I'm doing other amends. Hold on one second. Because I'm trying to avoid making amends to this guy because I don't want to face him and I don't want him. I, I just don't want to deal with him. Well, eventually a push came to shove and I had to go on Lincoln in California and make amends to this a-hole. No, he's all right. And I go to the bank. The bank was right next to his office. It was Liberty Federal at that time. I still had my account there because when I was a vendor, I opened up an account there. And uh, I went in and the woman gave me a 50, a 10, and two ones, $62. I can see her doing it now. She gave me a 50, a 10, and two ones. And I walk across the street. It was a Thursday. It was a Thursday. And I walk across the street to make amends to Dr. P. And I see his daughter in the office, but I don't see his name on the door anymore. It's all changed. Everything's changed. I walk in there and I see his daughter and I introduce myself. And she says, yes, I remember you. And I start talking to her for a minute. And she says, yes, I remember how horribly he treated you. And I give her the money because I never paid the bill. And she doesn't want it. I says, miss, you got to take this money. I says, you have no idea how much I need to give you this money and be rid of this thing. So she took it. I'm going to tell you something. My tires did not touch the ground on the way home. That's how elevated I was to God. I don't think I've ever been as far away from a Reese's peanut butter cup. Hold on. <clears throat> in my life. I could barely choke down my dinner. I didn't even want it. Now, you got to know, even today, when it is mealtime, I want to eat my dinner, lunch, breakfast, whatever the heck it is, my apple in the morning, whatever. But at, on that day, I did not want to eat. The last thing I wanted to do was eat. And I felt 
as I have never felt before. I felt lifted up like Bill, as though the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through me and through me. I don't think I've ever felt that close to God in my life. Don't miss that feeling. There is nothing as rewarding or as esteem building as doing the right thing when you don't want to do it. Do your amends. Don't dilly-dally. Do it. You'll recover this way. This process works. There's nothing about this process that is going to kill you. You're going to be fine. No one is going to shoot you. You're going to be fine. And by and by, when you do these things, you hate yourself less. You are more loving and accepting of others. You feel that presence of God Almighty in your life in a way that is very different than anything you could have imagined if your experience is parallel to mine. And it is uplifting. Now, I did manage to relapse one more time after that years later. I did. That's true. But what I can say to you is this works. It really does. Page 88, the most important sentence ever written on page 88 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says, and I quote, it works. It really does. Don't cheat yourself. Don't cheat yourself out of this process. It is amazing. Buckle up, buttercup. Because you're going to be taken place, you're going to be taken to places you never dreamed possible. In some significant areas of my life, I am in places today there is zero possibility I could have imagined, I could have engineered, or I could have made happen. Let God work in your life. This is a huge part of that process. Huge, not small, huge is the amends process. Let's continue. Perhaps we have committed a criminal offense which might land us in jail if it were known to the authorities. We may be short in our accounts and unable to make good. We have already admitted this in confidence to another person, but we are sure we would be imprisoned or lose our job if it were known. Maybe it's only a petty offense, such as padding the expense account. Most of us have done that sort of thing. Maybe we are divorced and have remarried, but haven't kept up the alimony to number one. She is indignant about it <clears throat> and has a warrant out for our arrest. That's a common form of trouble too. No matter what I face today, and there are painful things that I face every day, Things from my past, things from my present, imaginings from my future haunt me because I'm human. I'm human. Fear is I may not get my way in the future. Resentment is I didn't get my way in the past. And there are things that happen that hurt me. And there are things that happen that hurt you. It's a natural part of life. Don't forget that God is good. And no matter what you've done or what situation is, 
you would be amazed at the results you can get when you trust God above everything else. Don't cower. Don't isolate. Don't lie. Don't lie. Be honest with yourself, God, and others about the situation that needs this attention. Let God work his miracles in your life. Remember in step two, it said, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Sane people clean up their mess. Sane people clean up the past. Sane people do not hide in the house with Cheetos and Girl Scout cookies, preferably Thin Mints. Sane people don't hide in the house eating Girl Scout cookies by the box because of something they did 25 years ago. Sane people don't do that. That's not sanity. Bring God into the equation. You'll never, ever go wrong. Although these reparations, TAPA 79, take innumerable forms, there are some general principles which we find guiding. Now, what did I just say? Let's repeat it. Reminding ourselves that we have decided to go to any lengths to find a spiritual experience, we ask that we be given strength and direction to do the right thing, no matter what the personal consequences might be. This is very important information. No matter what the personal consequences may be, we may lose our position or reputation or face jail, but we are willing, we have to be, we must not shrink at anything. You know, one of the things I hear all the time is, God of my understanding, God of my understanding. I don't understand God. If God was small enough for me to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to solve my problem. And I don't understand why my people 6,000 years ago said, hey, Moish, there's, the, there's this one spot over here with no oil. Oh, yeah, there's no oil over here. Yeah, let's call this Israel and settle in there. What the heck were they thinking? Go to where there's oil for the love of God. But anyway, the bottom line is I have to trust. I cannot shrink at anything. The life of addiction is a life unlived. And the life of recovery is a life lived to the fullest. The way I need to live to the fullest is to be emancipated from the yoke of the guilt and the shame and the remorse and the horrible fear and anger that this disease will rot into my life. That's why I read pages 60 to 63 every single day of my life. I have to quit playing God. It didn't work. I have to stop writing the script and just go on what God wants, not what I want. Very, very important stuff. Page 79. Usually, however, other people are involved. Therefore, we are, we are not the hasty and foolish martyr who would needlessly sacrifice others to save himself. We can't look for scapegoats from the alcoholic pit. A man we know had remarried. Because of resentment and drinking, he had not paid alimony to his first wife. She was furious. She went to court and got an order for his arrest. 
he had commenced our way of life, had secured a position and was getting his head above water. It would have been impressive heroics if he had walked up to the judge and said, here I am. Well, we thought he ought to be willing to do that if necessary, but if he were in jail, he could provide nothing for either family. We suggested he write his first wife admitting his faults and asking forgiveness. He did and also sent a small amount of money. He told her what he would do in the future. He said he was perfectly willing to go to jail if she insisted. Of course, she did not. And the whole situation has long since been adjusted. But before taking drastic action, top of 80, before taking drastic action, which might implicate other people, we secure their consent. So if you are implicating someone else, you have no right to go do that. You secure their consent. If they don't give you consent, you don't implicate them. You do not have the right to hurt others. If we have obtained permission, have consulted with others, ask God to help, and the drastic step is indicated, we must not shrink. Now, in review, what did we talk about today? We talked about the fact that when we go to make an amends to somebody, we are there to straighten out the past, if we can. We are there to restitute that person on what we have done to harm them. If it's money, we pay it back. If it's supplies, we give them every cent restitution, whatever that might be. We don't have the right to implicate another person. We don't have the right to go make amends to somebody that we may end up hurting more. And those are reasons, those are some, but not all of the reasons why we need a recovered sponsor. We need a sponsor. And the sponsor has to guide us. Know what you're making an amends for. What are you making an amends for? You don't have to make amends to somebody because you stop seeing them. You don't have to make amends to them because you're no longer friends. You make amends because you harmed them. What did you do to harm them? We are not in the results business. We don't go to people to make amends because they're going to treat us a certain way or give us a, a, a great reception. We are not in the results business. Results are up to God. We take action. We plant seeds. He determines what those actions and seeds will yield. So we are not in the results business and we do not implicate other people. Very, very important. Let's continue with one more paragraph here. This brings to mind a story about one of our friends. While drinking, he accepted a sum of money from a bitterly hated business rival, giving him no receipt for it. He subsequently denied having received the money and used the incident as a basis for discrediting the man. He thus used his own wrongdoing as a means of destroying the reputation of another. In fact, his rival was ruined. He felt that he had done a wrong he could not possibly make right. If he opened that old affair, he was afraid it would destroy the reputation of his partner, disgrace his family, and take away his means of livelihood. 
What right had he to involve those dependent upon him? How could he possibly make a public statement exonerating his rival? After consulting with his wife and partner, he came to the conclusion that it was better to take those risks than to stand before his creator guilty of such ruinous slander. He saw that he had to place the outcome in God's hands, he, or he would soon start drinking again and all would be lost anyhow. He attended church for the first time in many years. After the sermon, he quietly got up and made an explanation. His action met widespread approval, and today he is one of the most trusted citizens of this town, of his town. This all happened years ago. When you trust God, when you take those actions, even though in your mind you may have cooked up reasons why you can't, you take those actions, let God be the final arbiter of where your life goes. You'll always be better off. I'm still alive. Doctors have been signing my death warrant from the time I was a kid. I'm, my bills are paid. This house is mine. Is it the house I dreamed of? No. Is it a house I'm that proud of? No. Is it you know, my dream home? No, but it's mine. I own it. The car outside, I own it. I don't make payments on it. It's mine. I paid cash for it. Let God be that final arbiter. You'll be amazed before you are halfway through. Trust God. Trust God. You'll never go wrong trusting God. Never. It may seem dark and gloomy for a while. And yes, I've had moments of doubt and moments of severe pain and rejection and all that other stuff in life and, and, and fear. I'm, no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. But in the final word, God will have the last word and it Be that final arbiter. Have a sponsor. Get the guidance of a sponsor. Divorce yourself from results. Do what you need to do. Make sure you don't implicate anyone else. And make sure you stay out of the results business. And if you don't do this, you're not going to recover. Okay, before I turn it over to Maria or Sue or whomever, I'm going to um, just remind you guys, if you asked a question last week, please hold back and let others who did not ask a question come forward. 